Cathedral of the Rockies Amity Podcast. My name is Tyler, and I work here at Cathedral of the Rockies with Pastor Ben Kramer. And just as a reminder, you can always check out our church, Cathedral of the Rockies, on our website and on our social media platforms. There you can see what is going on in the life of our church and even connect with us online. Links are in the show notes where you can check us out. And with that, enjoy today's sermon. friends, we're going to light the candle of peace today and, of course, the candle of hope before that we lit last Sunday. And I'd invite you to read the parts in the candlelighting liturgy marked all with me this morning. The word Advent comes from an ancient Latin phrase meaning until the coming. Um, it is a period of spiritual preparation in which many Christians make themselves ready for the coming of the Christ child. Each Sunday leading up to the celebration of the birth of Jesus, we make room. This Sunday, we make room for peace. When the world is frightening, and we desire to escape from the ongoing violence, the womb of creation invites us to remember a peace within. It is the peace within us that leads to us to transform the conditions around us. We cling to peace in a world full of violence. We search for it. We dare to discover peace in the small yet magnificent moments of our days. Let us light this candle of peace as we remember the God within us. I uh, didn't plan on singing for you this morning, but there's a, there's a song that's actually based on the passage I'm about to read for us today. And if you'd bear with me, I'd like to sing that song for you. It's only a few short verses, so you only had to put up with my voice that long. But these lyrics are directly from the Isaiah passage that we're going to read today, inspired by that. And this song, every year, is I just keep returning back to it, so I want to share it with you. I invite you to think about these lyrics as, as you hear them. It's called, O Day of Peace. O day of peace that dimly shines Through all our hopes and prayers and dreams Guide us to justice, truth, and love Delivered from our selfish schemes May swords of hate fall from our hands, our hearts from envy find release, till by God's grace our warring world shall see Christ's promised reign of peace. Then shall the wolf dwell with the lamb, nor shall the fierce devour the small. 
As beasts and cattle calmly graze, a little child shall lead them all. Then enemies shall learn to love. All creatures find their true accord. The hope of peace shall be fulfilled. For all the earth shall know the Lord. You'd hear these words from Isaiah chapter 2 that inspired that song this morning. It's echoed by other prophets like Micah and Joel in scriptures as well. These are constant refrains from the, the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. Listen to Isaiah chapter 2 in these first five verses. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What does it mean to make room for peace? What does it mean to make room for peace in a world like ours? Well, as I remind us often, it's important to ask, why is Isaiah saying these words? Whenever we encounter scripture, we're supposed to ask, why were these words written? And to who were they written? I want to give thanks to uh, Joel B. Kemp's for his commentary on this chapter. He's a professor of the Hebrew Bible at Emory University, and he really helped me to dive deeper into this text. Well, Isaiah is speaking to a nation that's in the middle of turmoil. There's no peace to be found. There was these folks called the Assyrians that were making life miserable for Israel. And Israel had also brought on that misery for themselves as well. In this time period of Isaiah, they were ripped between two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judea. And so they are also split because of internal division, and the Assyrian army is taking advantage of that kingdom divided against itself. And we all know what kingdoms divided against themselves are, right? As Jesus says, they cannot stand, right? And so they're divided against themselves because of inner conflict and the Assyrian army is coming and causing even worse conflict and they're experiencing the shortages that come along with being sieged by an external army, losing resources like food and water and shelter. Israel is in the midst of deep, deep heartache. And those were the words that Isaiah gave to the people there.
They had relative prosperity in the 8th century, and it was like a distant memory now, only like a dream that was barely remembered after you wake up. And the southern refuge soon confronts the same Assyrian army that had invaded both the northern and the southern kingdoms. And Isaiah, in the midst of all of that, received a vision concerning God's perspective about Judea and Jerusalem in the coming days. The prophetic vision in the Hebrew Bible promises a future that contradicts the people's present experiences. I don't know about you, but when I'm in the midst of deep despair, right, having my Eeyore moments, (laughs) and Tigger comes along, how do you feel about Tigger in Eeyore moments, right? Oh, everything's going to be great. Just keep bouncing, right? I don't want to hear from Tigger in the midst of my Eeyore moments, right? I want someone to join me. And that's, that's really, Winnie the Pooh really nailed the book of Job. Because if you, if you think of the book of Job like Winnie the Pooh, Job is sitting there and Tigger comes along and Piglet when he just needs the wise old owl or the wise rabbit to come along and sit with him in the midst of grief, right? That's when that beautiful practice of Shiva, sitting Shiva in our uh, brothers and sisters who practice the, the Jewish faith. Sitting Shiva, you come along a week after a tragedy happens and you literally just sit in a room, quiet, grieving, and allowing the, the, the person to cry, to yell, to wail, to laugh, to tell stories, but you're sitting there grieving. So Isaiah comes along and is a prophet that is experiencing this turmoil with Israel, sitting there in the midst of that grief. They don't know, they have an unpredictable future, but God gives Isaiah this vision. In the midst of these circumstances, this is God's plan to bring about this picture of peace for all of Israel. Can you imagine how unbelievable yet desirable that vision is? In the midst of such heartbreaking agony, this is the picture that God gives us even in spite of our present circumstances. This is what we should hold on to hope for even when everything around us seems to contradict what Isaiah is saying. The temple's prominent position precedes all of the nations coming to it, Isaiah describes. The author describes the nations coming to Jerusalem as though they were a stream of water. In this play on the word stream of water in the Hebrew and streaming people together allows the prophet to remind the people that God's prominence not only produces international attention, but also signals divine provision for God's covenant people in the midst of it all. Throughout prophetic literature, geographical and environmental transformation often accompanies a divine reversal of Judea and Israel's fortunes. God's promised future suggests the establishment of God's sovereignty and the restoration of Judah's reputation and the renewal of a valuable resource often threatened by military invasions. Water. Thus, any appeal to divine restoration includes spiritual, societal, and material expressions. My friends, that's one of the deep reasons why I have been drawn to Methodism, is I come from a Christian tradition that separates the sacred and the secular, the spiritual and the physical, right? Where it was so important to save your soul for eternity, 
while denying mental health issues, physical needs, hungry bellies, right? The priority was spiritual salvation alone. When Christ came and God is speaking to a people who are experiencing suffering from warfare, lack of resources, and they're crying out for these very real needs here and now. What are we taught to pray in in Jesus? Give us this day our spiritual comfort. Daily bread, real stuff that keeps our bodies going, right? The, The things that we need to survive just for today, just for today. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is anyone going hungry in heaven? Does anyone feel unsafe in heaven? No. So when we just isolate these spiritual concerns and deny people's physical, economic, political needs, we are not saving whole people. We are just looking to make ourselves feel good for letting them feel like they are spiritually saved while they're not, nothing around them feels safe. Methodists have always rejected that. That's why in Europe, John and Charles Wesley staved off a Great Depression while North America was going through, was about to go through one. Because of their radical love for the poor, they not only helped them spiritually, but they had enough to eat. <laughs> they had shelter, clean water to drink. Women were being put into positions of leadership and society was starting to flourish around them because of these proactive ways of living out God's gospel in the world. This declaration of peace. John Wesley would come along and say, there is no holiness, but social holiness. The ancient church in the first century would say, nolis Christianus, oh, sorry, mixed up my Latin there. Unis Christianos, nolis Christianos. Do you know what that means? One Christian is no Christian. One Christian is no Christian because we can't live out this faith on our own. It's not just love of God, but it's love of neighbor as ourselves as well, right? That's the two sides of the cross. When we just focus on that spiritual salvation, we are missing so much of Christ's gospel. He has come to bring good news to the poor, good, actual, literal news, good news to the poor. So this is that picture of, of whole redemption, whole liberation. Did God, and gosh, I didn't, plan on spending so much time on this, but did God come along to Israel and Egypt and say, I want to save you spiritually? No. Liberated the entire people out of bondage, right? This is the same God that is calling for that same transformational, holistic peace for a people. But God's grace extends even to the nations that are causing warfare now. That all nations would come to this God because this God will show God's power through the reality of people putting down their weapons. All nations. It's not just exclusive to one here, but the peace of God's vision is that the nations wouldn't train for war anymore. That's a powerful powerful statement for people that are experiencing war to not come along and have their God say, I will crush your enemies, (laughs) but I want the nations to not learn war anymore. So the enemy will not be turned against enemy, but will become your neighbor 
and your friend. This is a powerful, powerful vision. And this goes into the law that Isaiah was talking about, that we would walk in the way of God's law. That isn't heavy or burdensome, but it actually brings peace. This covenant of love that God has tried to establish with humanity from the very beginning is one that is not wearisome or heavy. As Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light compared to the restrictive elements of other authoritarian movements in the world. Come to me and you will receive peace from those things. God is trying to bring about this way of peace in the world. And Isaiah is using this metaphor of water to talk about it. Within certain Christian traditions, this image often links to Christ's promise in John chapter 7, where he talks about streams of living water around the well. These rivers of living water flow within each Christian as a reminder of the Spirit's presence and power, the same power that is on God's holy mountain that all the nations will be drawn to, that Isaiah says. Isaiah 2.4 ends with this most famous refrain, and I think is the most powerful part of this passage, that they shall study and learn war no more. And and the prophet anticipates a time when the instruments of war can be abandoned and transformed in favor of tools that bring and sustain life. For Isaiah and a land ravaged by sword-wielding and spear-hurling soldiers is transformed into a fertile land in which every sword and spear becomes agricultural tools to provide food for a peace-filled community. Amen. Amen. That's what we're looking for. How does the prophet imagine this transformation happening? What is the key to ending war and ushering in this era of peace? According to Isaiah, God's ability to judge fairly among the nations and distribute the basis for concluding the nation's wars. This is the verse I think about whenever I read about Jesus telling Peter to put his sword away. We all know that famous example, right? People come to arrest Jesus. What does Peter do? Pulls out his sword and cuts off someone's ear, right? It's actually the priest's servant um, in defense of Jesus. He doesn't want Jesus to be taken uh, and crucified. And Jesus not only heals the ear, which I think is a beautiful picture in our world today especially, that Jesus wants to show compassion to even those his disciples hurt. He reached out and healed him first. The person that his disciple hurt. (laughs) And Christ's disciples have always been so kind and courteous to us, right? To each other. The church is often such a wonderful place all the time, right? We never get feisty to each other. We never turn our words into weapons to each other. We never gossip. We've got that. But like just, I mean, social media really helps us to not gossip anymore, <laughs> right? We've just got it nailed. No, it can be a, heart, a hurtful place. People practicing to embody this peace are not going to get it right all the time. So what do we say to people who express that hurt or that religious hurt, that religious abuse? I'm sorry. That should be the church's response. (laughs) I'm sorry the church hurt you. And I hope that you experience Christ's healing just like this man who had his ear cut off by a disciple who thought he was doing the right thing by defending Jesus. 
Then he turns around to the disciple, and what does he say? Keep that sword drawn. He says, put that sword away. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And friends, where was he when he said that? In a garden. In a garden. Where was he resurrected? In a garden. He is there reversing all that had happened in that first garden in Genesis we read about, right? This grand reversal. And here we can hear Isaiah's prophecy coming to this desire by Jesus to say, we don't want to use swords. In fact, I have plans to repurpose that into cultivating this soil for the needs of the world around us. I'm not here to come and practice war. In fact, through me, and that famous Christmas hymn says, the government shall be on his shoulders, right? That means that God's jurisdiction will be shown through Christ and peace will come. Imagine if every instrument of war in our world was repurposed for garden tools. That's a bold vision. Uh, 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 have any of you heard of Shane Claiborne? He has a wonderful nonprofit. He will take your guns and turn them into hoes. <laughs> he will take your weapons and turn them into garden tools and mail them back to you. And he's got stockpiles of weapons that people have sent him for this vision in the world. That we hope <laughs> one day weapons will be useless on earth as it is in heaven. Do weapons have any use in heaven? <laughs> no. This is a bold, bold vision of God for the world. Isaiah 2, 1 through 4, strikingly similar to Micah 4, 1 through 5, and the other part of this in Joel that says the same exact words. And we're hoping, at the end of Micah says that each person will sit under their own vineyard, under their own fig, fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. No one will make them afraid. Imagine a world like that. Friends, I hope you know when you come here Sunday after Sunday, that's the world we're challenged to embody, <laughs> is that we live in a way that doesn't make other people afraid. What if the church just took that as their number one goal for 2024? That all Christians everywhere live in a way that makes no one afraid. That makes no one afraid. That makes no one afraid to walk through the doors of a church. That makes no one afraid because they live in a different way. That makes no one afraid because they have questions or doubts. <laughs> that we live in a way that brings peace. This verse from Isaiah was appeared in the poet Amanda Gorman's poem that she composed at the last presidential inauguration and she spoke it to the nation. Those words of Isaiah, the, the, I don't have as big of an audience as Amanda Gorman did that day, but it's the same words that she used in her poem from this passage of Isaiah. And before Gorman's use of it, it appeared in the musical Hamilton. Any Hamilton fans out there? It's in President George Washington's speech in Hamilton. And like Washington and Amanda Gorman and Isaiah here in the musical and the biblical prophets, many ministers today are charged with providing encouragement amidst troubling times. And now like then, 
a reminder of God's ability and desire to turn weapons of war into tools for life is a needed message today as it was in Isaiah's time. We who are privileged to share God's word in these times of suffering, anxiety, and war, we can find in Isaiah a fellow traveler to encourage, challenge, and strengthen us along the way as we pursue to make peace. As God and God's people respond to the crisis of our day, it's incumbent upon us to stand and do likewise in our day, one step at a time. My friends, God is at work even now making room for peace. The question is, are we? Are we? Isaiah 9-2, I'll leave you with these words from chapter 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. May it be the light of peace. Here are some reflection steps for you this week as you think about these power, this powerful vision from Isaiah. What areas of your life are you still learning and studying war? <laughs> if we took that as a metaphor for our own lives, I can catch myself thinking about past hurts, people I'm upset with. Yes, even as a pastor, I get angry with people, um, especially people online for some reason. Um, but are we constantly thinking of ways to get back? Because I have to tell you, as one who, who's, who's a professional at thinking of ways of getting back in my own life, it distracts me from pursuing peace. And maybe that person that hurt you, you can't pursue peace with, but you can pursue peace with someone else, right? You can go and bring peace to someone else's life that needs peace and encouragement, but you'll be so distracted by wanting to make war with someone <laughs> that you won't be going and proactively making peace for someone else. So it's important to ask this question, what areas of your life are you still learning and studying war in your heart, in your mind, in your actions? How can you think of ways for peace instead? Secondly, what ways can you turn your words from swords into plowshares? <laughs> this one has been such an important me one for me as well, where our words can be really barbed at times, right? And in a world of words that we live in, it can really hurt and damage people. Uh, that old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Lie. That's a lie. I'm a pastor. I have to tell you what lies are, and that's a lie. <laughs> words have the power to create and destroy. If that were true, conspiracy theories would have no impact on us. Right? If words had no power to create and destroy and really cause damage, conspiracies and misinformation would not hurt us at all but we've seen the devastating consequences of those things. So how can we in our own lives turn our words from swords into, into tools for life? And lastly, perhaps read this, this book recently I absolutely fell in love with. It's called Nonviolent Communication, and it's a language of life, life-changing tools for healthy relationships, and it's by Dr. Marshall Rosenberg. He's, he's a Jewish man that has dealt with anti-Semitism his whole life and talks about how he responds to, even he was in a cab once, and the person next to him didn't know he was Jewish and just started talking to him as if he was a fellow white supremacist. And he used that as an example in his book of how to speak nonviolently 
to a person you're sharing a cab with that has just told you that they're a white supremacist and just went off on an anti-Semitic tirade. I was just like, this is a person of strength, right? I want to listen to him. But he has gone throughout the world and has solved conflicts between tribes in other parts of the world that were at war with each other. He's gone and, and uh, dismantled um, violence between gangs in North America. He has a, a huge track record of settling disputes nonviolently and even stopping conflicts. We hear about conflicts a lot, but we don't hear a lot about people who stop wars from happening. <laughs> and those are the people we really need to hear today. But he also does this for relationships. I've always wanted better nonviolent ways to, to prevent conflict from happening in relationships, but also make peace. So I want to encourage you, if you would like a, a book, it's it's also an audio book, and he reads it, so you get to hear the author speak it to you. Uh, it's available on, on Audible through Amazon, too. Um, but maybe read that, that book and learn this language of life that brings about a nonviolent outcome, because you never know what great conflicts that might uh, prevent in the world around us. Thanks for listening today. Here at Cathedral of the Rockies, our motto is all means all, and we strive to truly live this out. You can help be a part of this by giving to us online. Here at the Amity campus specifically, we feed the hungry through our very active food pantry. Also, we are building up our children and youth programs so that we can serve all families in our area, and then also provide safe spaces for them to just be themselves. All means all. Any amount given is an investment that allows us to continue to serve those who join us in person and online and serve the growing neighborhoods around our church building. There is a link in the show notes where you can give online. Thanks again for joining us today and have a great rest of your day.